Please pray with me. Father, this morning I pray that we would see the glory of what Your Son has done on our behalf. And Lord, I pray that we would hear Your voice to us as we see what You have said and done for Your Son. Amen. Today seems like a fitting day, given the passage that we just read, to remind y'all why we walk the gospel into the midst of the congregation before we read it. It's a symbol that the Lord Jesus Christ has come into our midst, that he has not stayed distant, but that he has come close to us. We put a lot of stock in first steps. You only get one first impression, right? Whether you're talking about a politician announcing a campaign for office or a guy proposing to his girlfriend, we want to get those first steps just right. Whether it's your first day at work or you're a sprinter on the block at the Olympics, you don't want to stumble out of the gate. You don't get to redo those first steps. I say that because we are actually looking in this passage at Jesus's first steps in ministry. This is intriguing to me, that the very first thing that he did as an adult, the first words we hear him speak are in this passage, the first thing he does in his ministry is in this passage. The very first step that he took as an adult entering into his ministry was to enter into the waters with sinners who are waiting to confess their sin and repent of them. That he chose this as his first step is actually, I think, far more significant than we realized. He entered into those waters in front of John, John's waters of repentance, and he stood there in line with drunkards. He stood there in line with people who had cheated on their taxes. He stood there in line with men who had been abusive to their wives, with prostitutes, with people who had lied under oath, with people who had actually hurt their friends and their family members through their behavior, with people who had walked away from relationships that they should have cherished and protected, he entered into the waters and stood shoulder to shoulder with those sorts of people. He was spotless, sinless. He had nothing to repent of And yet there he is standing in the water side by side with, in line with people who had done everything wrong. He was God himself in the flesh. These people that he's standing with have been created through his power. He has every right to judge them and every right to condemn them for what they've done. But there he is standing in line as if he's one of them. He's not worried about his reputation. From any person's point of view on the banks of the river, looking at that man in the water with the others, he's yet one more of these sinners. He's not concerned that that's how he appears to the outside world. This is his first public act. This is really significant. He declares his intentions to us in this very public of first steps. It's his first step into ministry to say, I am one with sinners. As one commentator put it, he chose to be baptized in that moment 
not because he shares our need, but in order that he might share our need. It's a beautiful thought, him stepping into the waters. John protested. John says, I'm not worthy. This is my superior. I have no right to be doing this. And Jesus looks at him in the very first words of his adult ministry, the very first words, John, let it be. This is how we fulfill righteousness. This is how we fulfill righteousness. That should make us say, whose righteousness is he talking about? It's surely not his own. His own was already full. It didn't need filling up. And this is where it's helpful to remember the words that he spoke later when he said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Every bit of his life was a service to pay our ransom. And so this filling up of righteousness that he doesn't need, you say, whose sake is this for? It's an act of service. It's for us. For those people that he's standing shoulder to shoulder with in the water. It was humanity's righteousness that he was filling up. All of this is what theologians call vicarious atonement. Don't get thrown off by the big words. Atonement is a made-up English word. It was made up in the early 1500s by English translators of the Bible who were struggling to capture in a single word the idea of Jesus becoming at one with us so that we would be at one with the Father. Write the word out, atonement, at one meant. Jesus becoming one with us so that we would become at one with the Father. It's an act of atonement. We tend to think of atonement just as what happened on the cross, but his whole ministry is at oneness, becoming at one with us so that we would become at one with him. It's vicarious. In other words, it's done on behalf of another, a vicarious pleasure, one that you enjoy through another, a vicarious act, one that you do for another. It's vicarious atonement. Him doing something so that we would be at one with God. When he stepped into the waters of repentance, he was taking onto himself all of the sin that humanity had committed. The thing that ends on the cross with him dying there with our sins on his shoulders begins at this moment. These are the first and last chapters of the book that is Jesus's ministry. Everything in between is defined by these bookends. If you were to say, well, what about the pre-ministry phase of Christ? And we can call this in this analogy, the epilogue. And what's the cover of the book? It's Jesus Christ in glory from eternity past as the eternal word and son of the Father. What about the post-log, the resurrected Jesus, the back cover, his reign in heaven, the whole thing's there. But the first and last chapter of the book of his ministry is him stepping into the water with sinners to bear their sin and him dying as a sinner. The Lord who did not think it too good for himself to die between two sinners, surrounded by sinners jeering at him, did not think it too good to step into the waters, shoulder to shoulder with sinners, to bear their need and their sin in that moment. He was fully identifying with them becoming at one with them so that they could become at one with God. 
He was in that moment becoming at one with us in our sin. This is where this passage should begin to hit us. That in stepping into the waters of repentance, Jesus was actually confessing with us, repenting for us, confessing those sins that we don't know how to confess. What words of confession do you think he spoke in that water? He spoke the words that you and I don't know how to speak. He spoke the words that we don't yet know we need to be speaking. He spoke the ones that we're terrified to speak, thinking if I name that sin out loud, who would ever love me again? He stepped into the waters, bearing every bit of the shame and guilt that those people around him bore, bearing the shame and guilt that we bear, saying the things that we don't know how to say. Do you see him there? Standing in the waters with your sins on his lips, your shame on his shoulders, speaking these things not in condescension or anger, not in bitterness or frustration that you haven't got your act together, that Stephen Breedlove hasn't gotten his act together, but speaking these things in compassion and love and grief for the way these things wound us. He shouldered the guilt. He spoke these things as if they were his own for us, vicariously. All the things we have not known to confess, not known how to confess, been too frightened to confess. And he spoke these things to begin to fill up our righteousness. That's what he said to John, that we will fulfill righteousness in doing this. His first public act, his first public words, it's the key to his ministry. And every healing, every teaching, every calling of a disciple that comes in between this and the cross is laced through with this absolute commitment to be what with us and our very sinfulness. He was intent on filling up the world with righteousness, and he was willing to humble himself and start from the very beginning. He was willing to go to the bottom, to go to the lowest place that we had sunk, to go to the depths of our sin itself, so that he could begin from that very bottom to fill the world up with righteousness. He didn't need to do any of this. Remember, he came to serve. He did this as a servant. It was a gift to you. It was a gift to me. The Father's response to this gift from the Son, the Father's response to this first chapter in the book that is Jesus' ministry of vicarious atonement for the sake of our righteousness, the Father's response to this is to tear the heavens open and to shout aloud, this is my beloved Son, I'm pleased with Him, to shower Him with the Spirit and anoint Him for the ministry in front of Him. I could get lost in each of these three things. And I'm going to avoid, for the sake of time, preaching three additional sermons on each one of these things. But the Father's response shows us how enormous this moment is. The opening of heaven. The prophets have been praying for this moment. Isaiah 64, 1. Oh, that you would tear apart the heavens and come down. It's the cry of the people who are separated from their God. Open the heavens up to us. The banishment from the Garden of Eden is coming to an end. 
The barrier between God and man, that barrier of our sins, is being torn apart. God is now allowing man into his presence. When I was at Bible school in Germany, I had a classmate who grew up a few blocks from the Berlin Wall. And she said the day that it came down, as the word started circulating in the neighborhood that the wall was coming down, everybody rushed from their homes with picks and shovels and hammers and axes and whatever they could grab and begin to tear that wall apart themselves, joining in the work because there were people on the other side that they wanted to see. Friends and family members lost for years that they'd not been able to be. Tear that wall apart so that I can be with them. That pales in comparison to the heavens being opened so that man can be with God again. The barrier brought down. The declaration of love. This is my son. I'm pleased with him. It's this utterly unique statement. Twice in Matthew, only twice in Matthew. The Father speaks directly from heaven, once here and once at the transfiguration. And he says the same thing both times. This is my beloved son. I'm pleased with him. You hear his delight. It's like he's pointing all of the fingers of heaven and saying, this one is unique. He's the beloved son of the Father. He's the recipient of every promise that's been made in the Old Testament. He's the focus of every prophecy that's been made. He's the perfect man. You can hear him shouting, the perfect son of God. He's the object of my overwhelming affection. God's pointing every finger saying, don't miss Jesus. He is the beautiful one. It's why the apostles were captivated with him. It's why Mary Magdalene wouldn't leave the tomb. You know, she went out there with the spices and ran back to tell the apostles. You know, she went back and she sat there by the tomb because she was fixated on Jesus. She got the point. It's why Peter in front of the Sanhedrin said, I won't stop talking about him. You can do what you want, but I won't stop talking about him. It's why Paul said to the Corinthians that every promise that God has ever made is yes in Jesus Christ. They were fixated on him because they got the point. The father looks at him and says, he's everything. He brings me pleasure. He's the beloved one. And then the third thing, the anointing of the spirit. You likely know this, but Messiah is just the Hebrew word for Christ, the Greek word. And both of them simply mean anointed. And you say, when was Jesus anointed? You're looking at it in this passage anointed by the Father. And anointings in the Bible are for a task. You remember David anointed to become king? Anointings are for a task. And you say, what was he anointed for? In the, in the passage that we read in Acts, Peter says that he was anointed to do good. He was anointed to heal. He was anointed to free people from demonic impression. In the Isaiah passage that we just heard, He's, it says that he's anointed, and he's anointed to bring justice, to protect the weak, to be a light to the nations, to free people from darkness and blindness and captivity. He was anointed for these tasks. He was anointed because he stepped into the waters of repentance. And the Father said, this one's worthy of carrying my anointing. 
this beginning of his ministry of vicarious atonement, in this moment, the Father says, now is the time. And he showers the gift of the Spirit on him to empower him for his ministry. Because Jesus stepped into the waters of repentance, he received these three gifts. Heaven opened, so there's no barrier between man and God. A declaration of love and pleasure, an anointing with the Spirit. Jesus earned these gifts by his merit. They were actually already his because he is the eternal Son of God. And yet we find in Philippians 2 that he did not feel the need to keep grasping on to these gifts. He was willing to humble himself and let them go and earn them back again by what he was willing to do. And when he stepped into the waters of repentance, the Father showers these gifts back on him because not only are they his right by his nature, he's now earned them by his merit. The Father showers these gifts on him because he earned them. He deserved them by becoming one with sinners. And yet, the staggering thing about the gospel is it, and this is really where I want to go, what I want you to hear. The staggering thing about the gospel is that our Lord who earned these and deserved these gifts does not keep them for himself. This is the point. We don't deserve the heavens being opened to us. We don't deserve to see the face of God. We don't deserve God revealing himself to us. We cannot earn our way into the presence of the Father. Our sins have made a barrier that we cannot break. We don't deserve to see him. And yet Jesus gives us that very gift that he earned. He gives us the right to step into the presence of the Father. As Hebrews says, we can enter into the holy place with confidence. And we can enter there because our hearts have been sprinkled clean and our bodies washed with pure water. Do you hear the reference to our baptism there? That in his baptism, he earns something that he then offers to us. The right to step into the presence of the Father. For the heavens to be opened to us. We don't deserve the declaration of God's love and pleasure. We don't deserve to be called the beloved one. How many times have y'all said, I wonder if God is pleased with me? And felt, I just must not be that pleasing to God. We don't deserve that declaration of love and pleasure. And yet the one who does deserve it and who did earn it gives it freely to all of us. He bestows it on us. Galatians 3 says that in our baptism we are clothed with Christ. Romans 8 says that we've been adopted as sons and daughters. In other words, that declaration of love, this is my son, because of the work and the gift of Jesus, is now directed towards you. That the Lord looks at you and says, this is my daughter. This is my son. I'm pleased with this one. We've been clothed with Jesus in our baptisms, and when he looks at us, he sees not your frailty and weakness and inadequacy, but instead he sees the perfection of his son. That he looks at you 
And that same overwhelming shout of joy directed towards Jesus Christ is now directed towards you and me. This one is my child. I love him. I love her. I'm pleased with her. We're given that gift that we did not deserve. And we didn't do anything to secure the gift of the Spirit. We couldn't earn that sort of anointing. We don't deserve it. We don't even know what to do with it. And yet, Acts 2, when people come to Peter and say, what do we need to do to be saved? What does he say? Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Spirit. That same anointing that fell on Jesus is offered to us at our baptism. That same anointing so that we can step into the very ministry of the Messiah. Those things Peter mentions in Acts 10, healing, doing good, freeing people from demonic oppression. The same ministry mentioned in Isaiah 42, being a light in the darkness, breaking people out of captivity, bringing justice, protecting the weak. That same ministry we have been anointed to do, not because we deserved it, but because it was freely given by the Lord who does not hold on to his gifts for himself. If Christ had not stepped into the waters of baptism for us, our baptism would have been meaningless. But because he did, in our baptism, we receive the gifts he earned. The heavens have been opened. You can go into the presence of the Father. The declaration of love has been offered. You are the beloved of the Lord. And the Spirit has been given so that we can step into the ministry of the Messiah. One of the theologians I was reading this week said that part of the problem with modern Christians is very simply that we don't realize what's been done for us. My hope this morning is that you see that everything that was showered on Jesus in that moment is freely offered to you. Amen.